a most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles? Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. It's a two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. All right. Hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. I'm joined with Terry Phillips and Catherine Fuller-Seeley and Vincent Longo. We have uh, another episode of Orson to chat about. And uh, let's just get into it. Let's head over to Vincent. Vincent, what uh, stood out for you for this episode? Absolutely. So um, the first thing you'll notice in this episode is this is the first time in several weeks he does not mention around the world. In fact, he doesn't mention that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, he, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that the show is going better. So even though the last couple of weeks I've been just totally sort of destroying the show so much that it might make it sound like I don't like the show, it's just not true, but it's starting to reach a groove. That doesn't mean it doesn't have problems. They're in Philadelphia, but they're just about to leave. And the other good news is that Wells knows they're going to Broadway for sure. Because in two days, he would be at the Adelphi Theater in Broadway setting up. So I think Wells is uh, realizing everything's good. I got the show where it needs to be. Critics still think that the show is overbloated. They're starting to appreciate all the many pieces, the circus. I mean, just how big it is. But they still think it's too long. But they're also starting to see other good things. Like um, Arthur Margotson as Phileas Fogg. People are really picking up that he's doing a really good job. Cole Porter is still getting trashed as he will continue to get trashed um, uncharacteristically in his career. But as I said, uh, this isn't his greatest. I, I think I like it. It's worth listening to. Um, the other thing that's happening is Wells thinks he's found a replacement. I said uh, incorrectly, I think last week, that um, they never looked for a replacement. I had forgotten they did. And they thought they found one this week that, that we're hearing the recording. So um, he had just found out like the day before that it wasn't going to work, but I think maybe he thought there were other things. So we can see him finally starting to calm down and he's clearly prepared in a way this week that he hasn't in the other weeks. Um, And he's, you know, he sees the the new deal crumbling down, which we can talk about now. But I think that's one of the reasons we see Wells sort of on guard, both because uh, things he cares about are really being attacked. And also he thinks around the world is managed. Yeah. Yeah. Terry, what are your uh, thoughts on this episode? Uh, A couple of small details. First of all, he makes reference um, to um, Senator Claghorn, which uh, I can only assume was uh, the the character on uh, the Fred Allen show, um, Beauregard uh, Claghorn, played by Kenny Delmar. Uh, I'm um, (laughs) astonished that Orson Welles would mess with one of the most iconic poems in the English language, No Man is an Island. He, he, he changed the, the order of things and changed a few words here and there. And, and I don't know why he did that, whether maybe he was doing it by memory and forgot, or it's Orson Welles, he can do what he wants. But I just I found that amazing. Um, the, uh, the, the, the meat of this commentary is uh, about uh, the anti-labor um, development in, uh, in Congress, in, in the U.S. Senate. And uh, it culminated the year after this commentary with the Taft-Hartley Act. Uh, maybe one of the worst 
bits of legislation with respect to um, the rights of, uh, of workers ever passed in the, the United States. Um, the, the last thing I want to say is that uh, the, the letter writer, I think I heard him pronounce her name as Ann Beers. I think that was yeah. her name. I, I yeah. found her on Ancestry.com. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Well, she, she was Canadian. Well, she was actually British, but lived in Canada, married a, a Canadian. And, um, and I wondered how she heard it. And I looked at the map and Victoria, Canada, where she lived, is kind of a direct line of sight from Seattle, where there uh, was and still is an ABC radio station. So I guess maybe that's how she heard the show. And the one line that uh, Wells crafted in that part of this commentary was referring to the sickness of cynicism. I love it when he when he has a, a beautiful turn of phrase, which he does quite often, and that was uh, I think my favorite in this commentary. Well, uh, I need to jump on that because uh, Terry has backwardly stumbled, stumbled into something that I that I I've recently had the experience to enjoy. Uh, we we took the ferry up to Victoria, and uh, when we did that. Uh, it's a ferry line. I can't remember the name of the ferry line. It's Black Ball Ferry, maybe. Anyway, uh, I didn't realize Bing Crosby had sang a song about the, that ferry line. And to this day, you get on the ferry and you start going. And when you start going, they start playing the song. And all of a sudden, there's Bing Crosby singing a song to all the people on the ferry. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, when do you get a chance to hear Bing Crosby? It's not even just Bing. It's Bing and the, um, the sisters, the, the famous sisters. Who am I thinking of? The Andrews sisters? Yes, yes, the Andrews sisters. It's, it, it's a song with all of them. And I found it on, on uh, uh, Spotify after that. And so, yeah, it's... I guess a semi. Is this the one that has somebody going toot toot and mentions all the names of the? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because the Sportsman Quartet do a version of that as a commercial in a Jack Benny television oh, program, well, and yet they that. cut out the bit that talks about um, uh, uh, Lucky Strike, so uh, you don't get it the whole way through. So. Oh, okay, okay, but that's that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so I just noticed that it was just like oh wow that is pretty cool thing my wife is like oh my goodness because uh, she, she and I were in different parts of the ship at the time when it was playing and so I came up to her part of the ship and she's like did you hear that it was it was being crossed she knows I'm a Bing Crosby fan and so I'm like yeah yeah I heard it in my part of the ship too it's all good so so because uh, she was going I hope they play it again and then they did right at the end of, of our journey when we got where we're going then they played it one more time so that was cool but well, that's uh, fabulous yeah yeah so, um, well, that's Kathy, what I just like to. So, well, I'd like to contribute that Ann Beer, Annie Beers, was a real woman. I mean, I, I couldn't find out when she died, but she was there in Victoria, British Columbia in the 50s and 60s. So, um, I thought that was really cool. Um, I, I felt said this is like one of the last. I love the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt is a genius, you know, kind of commentaries that anybody else is going to, he's just going to get piled on. Nobody's going to be able to say, oh, how wonderful Franklin Roosevelt is anymore. You know, the Republicans just want to trash his, um, his legacy and his, um, uh, you know, no, no more homages to FDR after this. So I felt a little sentimental by how um, fervently uh, our friend Orson uh, loved his um, uh, former president. And yep. I sort of thought, 
that as he winds up and he's talking about Annie Beers and the and the indeed the the um the symptoms of cynicism, the disease of cynicism, and the search for God in this faith. And I felt he was kind of winding up into a sort of Henry V kind of, you know, now we're going to go kill the French at Agincourt. I just, uh, he was pulling all his his uh, theatrical experience, it seemed to me, together to try and, you know, ah, believe in something, go, dude. So. Yeah, to build on that, I do think Terry uh, and Kathy, he is probably, he probably didn't write that part down. As Kathy said, he does seem to be sort of winding up. He's pulling parts of things that he said before. I mean, for example, his, his sort of criticism of her and her letter, he mentioned several other letters ago, which is, if you were so afraid, you wouldn't have wrote me. He says that. And then he does return to these more theatrical things. He has this like very apocalyptic picture that he paints. Uh, you know, he's bringing up the bomb again. We live in the age of the bomb. And so he seems to just be sort of recycling things he said before, mm -hmm. almost like mm -hmm. as if he doesn't completely have a rebuttal. And then he just sort of ends with this general statement, like we need to all stick to our, you know, stick together. You know, it's very general in a way that it's specific in his own way, but also general. And so I thought he kind of was just yeah. going with it. I, I almost <laughs> wonder whether he was working from notes rather than a script or maybe, a, you know, the outline of a script and not a, a complete script. I mean, he stumbled a couple of times, too, which is odd for Orson Welles. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. He, he could have um, also thought he was going to run out of time before he ended the letter. Because, you know, yeah. in, in the past episodes, he gets the letter, he reads it, he has like one line that he, he says, like, thank you for writing, makes a quick comment and then gets out. So maybe he's like, well, I have like three or four minutes and now I'm just going to, you know, oh, I'm just going to go. Yeah. He didn't even mention the radio this time. Did you notice that? Oh, this yeah. It's true. We don't know if she got her, her prize radio or anything. Maybe probably they ran out, out of free ones. I don't know. The, con the contract <laughs> runs out in a couple of months, I think. He's like on his shelf is like... I'm out. I'm, I guess I'll have to go to something else. And now giving away boxes of Cracker Jacks. <laughs> a fine treat for you and your family. <laughs> no, one I, thing I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Go ahead. I was just, oh, yeah, just want to say I thoroughly enjoyed it because it because it does leave kind of the play talk behind and goes to more of his traditional sort of thing, which I think he needed about now. He really does a nice job throughout this whole series about he'll go off on a tangent or go somewhere and then come back a few episodes later. He never sticks on anything too long. It starts to wear out its welcome. And then he, he, he goes in a different direction. So he's definitely kind of aware of when he's pushing things too far with the audience and that sort of thing. So I think that's really good that he can pull that off. And Vincent, you were going to say, yeah, I was just going to say uh, the other thing that I really appreciated in this episode is his, vivid portraits that he paints of Congress in particular. Um, first is the portrait that he paints of um, the halls of the Capitol lined with Dixie cups and essentially like trash as if they had a party to right. kill the new deal. The other thing that he does really well is um, sometimes maybe pushes it too far, but he's basically comparing Congress to a bunch of gangsters or thugs. And he uses a voice to, uh, to impersonate one of them that he actually uses uh, throughout his career when he is referring to thugs or to crooked cops in particular. So um, in the film Touch of Evil, where he plays a crooked cop, he uses the exact same voice that he uses oh, wow. to, uh, to play Congress. I mean, it's, it's identical, even though that film takes place, you know, about 10 or he shoots it in 10 years or so later, it's the same voice. And so again, he's connecting these ideas of like crookedness, crooked cops, crooked authority, 
to this sort of gangster voice that he does. And so, um, yeah, he's not so nice to Congress. That one guy from Oregon, I think, or Florida, I can't remember where he, there's Florida, one guy Claude he likes. Pepper, who shows Florida. up again as a very, very old congressman. Yeah. I, um... no, I thought it was great. And Vincent, that, that wonderful uh, combination of cellophane and Dixie cups, who, who would find those similes? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Well, he's, he's incredible. Well, I think we'll leave it there and uh, we'll join us next week for another Orson. I just love our team and I love that we can talk about these Orson shows. And it's it's interesting knowing that where these shows are going to head. And and uh, I think we have a lot of to, to look forward to. And, and uh, I'm sure he's going to talk more about his production that he's putting on and everything as well in the future episodes. So we'll get back to that, I'm sure, as well. So and Vincent adds awesome insights to that. I just love it because I, I don't think we'd have all those insights certainly without you, Vincent. So thank you for coming. I Very just kind. put a little present for you in the uh, in the chat, by the way, before you jump off. Okay. And and, uh, and Vincent, we'll be sending you either your radio or your box of Cracker Jacks, whichever way you can find. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got to be a Lear radio from this time period. That's all, that's all I'll accept. So you so you can tape anything you want that that shows up there on your wire and it'll be great. Yeah, okay, fine. I'll settle for a case of Palmasan wine. Yes. There you go. Yeah, we'll sell <laughs> no radio before next time. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. This is Orson Welles speaking. Hello. Well, it's a quiet Sunday in Washington. Quiet as a tomb. Washington today is a little bit like a tomb because the New Deal is dead. Long live the New Deal. Weary porters are sweeping the debris off the Senate floor. Cigar-chewing senators can drop a lot of cellophane on the green plush rugs. The Honorable Mr. Claghorn throws plenty of Dixie cups around. He and his cronies from both sides of the Mason and Dixon line can fill a lot of cuspidors. They can make quite a mess, a mess, that is, when they're playing at being patient, when they're sitting up all night, when they're waiting, 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 till a tired little handful of liberals in the House loses its voice. When that happens, the gentlemen of the United States Senate spring into action, and it's all over in a flash. Even veteran observers sometimes can't follow the speed of the assault. Painstaking reforms, safeguards that took 13 years to grow, are yanked up, rotten all out of the soil of democratic law, left to curl up and rattle away in the dusty wind, just part of the garbage on the Senate floor, one with the cellophane in the Dixie cups. Here's a little human right, spirit, spirit with a little pointed stick, drop it in the litter bag, another human right, and another... And another. Casualties resting with the crumpled notepaper and the cigar bands on the Senate battlefield. Here's part of the greatness of an era. Roll it up and cart it off. It's dead and gone. Here's part of the greatness of a great name. Dump it down the chute. What was that name again? Oh, yes, Roosevelt. But Roosevelt is dead. Haven't you heard? And the New Deal is dead. Long live the New Deal. I've never seen a plague of locusts, but I've watched a swarm of bugs liquidating a farm field. First there's one bug, then thousands of bugs, then millions. You can't swat them. Brush them off your arm, they light on your nose and in your ears and then in your mouth. Seems like they're moving in on the oxygen itself, taking over the very air you breathe. 
It's like that in Washington. The Ball-Burton Hatch Bill first. Price seating on labor legislation. Then the Case Bill. Wait a minute. Nobody thought it would go that far, but it did. Went much further. An American president named Harry Truman came up with the most savage bill of all. And the Senate pounced like a bear trap. It was like a blitzkrieg in the House. An American president named Harry Truman stopped talking at 4.19. By 6 p.m., the House adjourned. The job was done. Labor was all but scuttled. Our elected representatives from here and there had set the American clock back 50 years. In the upper chamber, they were more methodical. They had plenty of votes to pass the Truman Bill. But the smell of blood was in the air. You could hear the steady, quiet, careful champing of the tiger's teeth finishing the kill. There was the case bill. First they passed that, but that wasn't enough. They threw in the Hobbs bill and every other piece of crackpot anti-labor legislation that was lying around. It all passed with votes to spare. Unconstitutional? What's that? I say it's unconstitutional. A lonely voice on the Senate floor. A lonely liberal. Unconstitutional? So what? All this infringes on the rights of man, says the gentleman from Oregon. Who cares? This abrogates the freedom of workers, Claude Pepper speaking. Repeals the Bill of Rights. Tell the senator from Florida to sit down. Rights? Human rights? Who cares about them? It's our night to howl. It's our 4th of July. We're in the saddle now, boys. Get out the firecrackers. Light the fuses on the pinwheels. Shoot off the guns. Let's open us another case of bourbon, boys. We waited a long time for this. We waited since 1932. Bring out the stops. Hit C over high C on the organ. Make the cat jump. Higher, higher, higher. Crack goes the whip. Watch him fall into line. Ain't it pretty? Senator George calls for a vote. Passed. Fine. Next amendment, please. There's a man up there in the gallery. His face is wreathed in smiles. Who is that man? He is a thing called a lobbyist. Who does he work for? A thing called the National Association of Manufacturers. Sure he's happy, this smiler with a knife. But perhaps he shouldn't be. Maybe he's wrong to smile. Could be he'll have no job next week. No job? That's right, no job. If Congress goes on like this, if Congress wrecks everything Roosevelt put on the books, what will he have to lobby for? But wait a minute, just a second. Hold on there. What am I talking about? Did this really happen? Yes, it really happened. And what started isn't over yet. It's 11 a.m. Monday. The boys are going back to work. They've got some other stuff, stuff, that is, to clean up. They've got more and even more oppressive anti-democratic legislation to pass in the Senate. They're fixing to tie labor up in knots so tight. Could be that German workers under Hitler look a little like free men. Country is fed up with strikes. The constituents hunger for quicker reconversion. The nation's mood is just right for the job. But it's quite some job. Undoing so much that was done in 13 years is quite a job. The boys will have to rise betimes on Monday, and they will... They've waited too long to pass up the opportunity. The Senate sat until 1.15, 1.15 a.m., Friday morning. The CIO and the AFL and the Railroad Brotherhoods didn't have a single member present in the galleries at that time. Fifteen million organized workers not represented. None of it makes sense, but it's all true. They weren't there when the chips were down. Henry Wallace wasn't there when the cabinet blessed Harry Truman's terrible first try at big-scale strike-breaking. Henry Wallace was missed. There was another mist in Washington last week, as he is missed everywhere in the world. He sleeps under the century-old hedges of the Rose Garden at Hyde Park. The air still shakes with the salvos of homage paid to his memory. 
but the eloquence leaves behind it a ringing silence. An American president named Harry Truman bowed reverently over that grave and reverently pledged fidelity. Remember? Where's Franklin Roosevelt today? Maybe he's looking down on Washington, D.C. You can almost see him. The way he used to look down on the White House lawn. You can almost see that cigarette holder tilting up at the extreme angle reserved only for victory and the most crucial defeat. Things went the wrong way for Roosevelt and the Roosevelt way in Washington last week. It wasn't for this that Roosevelt laid down his life. Roosevelt died for more, not for less. I wonder if he heard Harry Truman's enemies and his own enemies cheering Harry Truman's call for prison terms for labor leaders. If Roosevelt could send this new American president a single word of practical politician's wisdom, I think it would be this today. Harry, the reactionaries that cheer Democrats always vote for the Republicans. What about the OPA? Well... OPA won't matter much if labor is hammered into the shackles. Labor's been the thing that kept OPA working. Looks like they're crushing labor. If they do, it'll be WPA, not OPA. It'll be apple peddling, not auto building. It's like a bad dream, but it's true. This is it. Now they're cheering Harry Truman in the Senate. He's a great guy. He came through. He pulled up the sluices. He let the muddy waters of anti-labor hatred spill over. And his cup is running over. Soon it'll be all over for him. Yesterday they were laughing in Harry Truman's face. They'll laugh in his face tomorrow. And we have a custom on this program of reading your letters and their wonderful letters. And here's one from somebody in Victoria. A young lady who writes me, I'm not a neurotic, Mr. Wellsner. Am I a daffy housewife? I do not pretend to know the first thing about politics. I try to understand what is going on in the world today, but it's completely beyond my powers of understanding. I'm an English girl, and I married a Canadian flyer in England in 42. I've had an average education, and I, I think I have an average intelligence. No, I know I have. Throughout the war, I lived in London. I saw many things, but there again, I am not alone. I've lived in Victoria for a year now. You're wondering, I suppose, what on earth this woman's life history has to do with your broadcast. Well, I, I don't exactly know myself. It's just that I felt I had to make someone understand how thousands of boys and girls and women and men are feeling about life now. Living in Victoria after wartime England was like after death, entering into paradise, or it should have been. It didn't register after the first week, like going to see a film. Whilst in the cinema, you were moved and felt yourself actually living with the players. Whenever it left... When it was over, rather, it left a vague impression, soon to be forgotten. Life to my generation, Mr. Wells, a generation grown up in the war and now facing a future of peace, is vague. We are cowards, not for physical pain or in injury, but because we're afraid of a future of peace. Afraid of it. I'm very much afraid of what I do not know. That's why we need help. Living from day to day should, should have ended with the war. For me, when I came to Canada, should have, but it didn't. I found it didn't, and we need assurance of some description, Mr. Wells, something to believe in. I'm 22 years of age, 20 when I came out here. It's my generation which will help adjust the world today. We can't do that if we shy from the tomorrows. I have no suggestions to offer. I doubt very much if you have either. I don't expect this letter to reach you, nor do I expect anything to come of it. If perchance it does reach you, 
That's what I've been trying to say all along. We, we, we do not expect anything. It's like living without hope. Why have we lost our hope and our expectations of life? How can they be restored to us? At present, the majority are wrapped up in their wives, new homes and families. But will that last very long? Soon, like others already, the rest will feel despair when listening to newscasts or reading newspapers. And what then? How about that readjustment? I'm not in the depths of despair. I'm a coward. I ignore what I read and hear. I have a sunny nature, a sense of humor enough to eat, a roof over my head. So why should I worry about things I don't understand? Let someone else worry about it. How many others are going to feel like I do? That's the question. How many others are going to feel like I do and what then? Signed, Anne Bears. My dear Miss Bears... You and I and most of the human family are searching for what some of us call God. Searching not for a new God, but for a new faith. Your letter defines the symptoms of the reigning malady of our age, the sickness of cynicism. The enormity of recent events have given us all a sense of helplessness in this era of the atom. We are, every one of us, stumbling into the most hopeful hour in our whole long history, crippled with the phobia of defeat. What you're saying has been said earlier, and so the problem must have been very real before the Blitz and before your coming to Victoria, before any English people came to America, before bombs and even before bullets. You are saying that man does not live by bread alone, and you are very urgently moved by this conviction. The measure of your passion in this matter is the measure of our hope. You say you're a coward, but you've written me publicly to say this, which takes courage. Why, you ask, have we lost our hope and our expectations of life? Miss Bears, if you had lost all hope and every worthy expectation, you wouldn't find it needful or even possible to write me of the loss. There must be very few thinking humans today who live without the dizzy fear of impending panic or paralysis. The bomb casts a long, cold shadow across the living world. The odor of the grave breathes out of this new darkness. Madden, madness threatens and despair rides its own skeleton horse after the figures of the apocalypse. On the battlefields, there is hunger and hate. Broken hopes fester in the soul, and here in rich America, we are moving backwards toward chaos. It looks hopeless. But if it were, there would be reason enough for the good fight, because the good fight is worth fighting even when the good fight must be lost. And the good fight need not be lost. If in the snug and sunny comforts of Victoria, you are wise enough to see that something stands between you and the sun, between you and those comforts, then you are wise enough to guess that you are not alone. You said that about your life in London. You are not alone, you said. Always remember that you are never alone. This comfort is the source of every living faith. Doubt is not of necessity the end of faith. It is also the beginning of faith. Why should I worry, you say? Why should I worry about things I don't understand? Let somebody else worry about it. If you didn't worry, you wouldn't have written me, and I'm sure you know the answer to that one as well as any commentator speaking into any radio microphone. I quoted these lines once before this year, but they, they answer you as you want to be answered. I think John Don wrote them. No man is an island entire of itself. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. All my best to you, Miss Bears, and thanks to you, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks to you for listening. Please let me come to call again next week. Till then, I remain, as always, obediently yours. Every bit of food you can save can help save lives. 
Orson Welles spoke to you today from Philadelphia. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.